Welcome to this evening's lecture by Mr. Robert Spencer. Mr. Spencer is the director of Jihad Watch and the author of two New York Times best-selling books on Islamic Jihad. Spencer has written seven books and more than 200 articles about Jihad and Islamic terrorism. In addition to the two New York Times bestsellers, The Truth About Muhammad and The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades, he is the author of Islam Unveiled, Disturbing Questions About the World's Fastest Growing Faith, a book which many of us are familiar. He has appeared on BBC, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, C-SPAN, and many radio programs such as Bill O'Reilly's Radio Factor, Michael Savage's Savage Nation, The Michael Regan Show, Vatican Radio, and many others. Spencer received his master's in religious studies from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and has studied Islam since 1980. Tonight, he will deliver a lecture entitled, Jihad, What It Really Is and Why It Matters. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Robert Spencer. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you all for coming. It is a uh, great pleasure to have an opportunity to speak with college students who are actually free of the academic propaganda that blankets so many of our nation's universities and stifles discussion particularly of uh, our subject at hand. And I uh, have the pleasure of speaking to them on a more or less regular basis. It's very refreshing to be in a different environment. In any case, the uh, question about jihad is, of course, a very pressing moment regarding what kind of a conflict that we're in in the world today and what can be done about it. But there is an extraordinary degree of disinformation, misinformation, obfuscation, half-truth, and distortion about this question. And... I think perhaps one of the most vivid examples of the cognitive dissonance that is created by the gap between what we are ordinarily told about what jihad means and what Islam in general teaches and the reality of those things was in the speech given by the Holy Father, Pope Benedict XVI, at Regensburg, the notorious address now, and in the reaction to it around the world, particularly in the Islamic world. Of course, the controversy about the address had to do solely and wholly with his quoting the 14th century Byzantine emperor, Manuel Paleologos, who said that Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, did not bring anything new or original into the world except things which were evil and inhuman. And of course, in response to this, there was a nun murdered in Somalia, a priest murdered in Turkey, riots and triumphalist demonstrations even in London outside the cathedral there where protesters held signs reading Jesus was a prophet of Islam Pope Benedict you will pay and so on which is really kind of an interesting and illustrative reaction to an address discussing the relationship of faith and reason and the necessity for religious dialogue. Illustrative in a great number of ways. Most notably, I think, of some core assumptions that a great number of Muslims around the world have today. And those assumptions are very important for Christians to understand, particularly when they are trying to undertake religious dialogue, and also when, even if they have nothing to do with religious dialogue whatsoever, when they're simply trying to understand why these things happen, and what they arise out of. And the answers to those questions 
are tied up inextricably and essentially with the question of what jihad is and what kind of a conflict the world faces today. And so, in really, in order to understand these things, we have to go back all the way to the figure of Muhammad himself, who was, of course, the insulted party in the Regensburg Address. He was the one who was charged with bringing nothing into the world except what was evil and inhuman. And as a result, Muslims did some things that were evil and inhuman in their outrage against this. Muhammad, of course, as you no doubt know, is the prophet of Islam. He lived from 570 to 632 A.D. in Arabia. He was, for the first 40 years of his life, a merchant in Mecca, his home city. He was a member of the tribe, the Quraysh, who were pagan Arabs, who operated the shrine, the, the, the Kaaba, which is now the center of Islamic pilgrimage. One of the five pillars of Islam is the obligation, at least once during one's lifetime, to make one's way to the Kaaba in Mecca to venerate the black stone that was thrown by Allah from paradise to earth. The shrine itself and the pilgrimage also predate Islam. And at the time of Muhammad, at, during the first 40 years of his life, the Quraysh made their living operating the pilgrimage site. As you are perhaps familiar, if you have been to Rome or Jerusalem, holy sites can often become tourist traps. Mecca was no different. And there were 360 idols within the Kaaba, within the cube-shaped building that houses the black stone. And the 360 idols were all various gods worshipped by the pagan Arabs. And people would come from all over Arabia to make pilgrimages to venerate the gods at the Kaaba. Among the idols was an icon of the Blessed Mother and her son. And they were venerated there along with all these idols. The Quraysh made a good living from this pilgrimage business. Until in the year 610, Muhammad was praying, according to the canonical Islamic story of the origins of Islam, Muhammad was praying on a mountaintop and an angel appeared to him, the angel Gabriel, commanding him to recite. And he said, I can't recite, I don't know how to read. The angel insisted, commanding him to recite. Whereupon he became the prophet. And over the period of the next 23 years, he received a series of revelations sporadically, which Muslims believe were and are the infallible word of God, every word spoken by God himself, dictated through the angel Gabriel to Muhammad and collected shortly after Muhammad's death into the Quran. Now, if you go back to the earliest Islamic accounts of this story, the situation is a little bit different. And you don't get this picture of the angel Gabriel coming and delivering this commission to Muhammad and then Muhammad placidly carrying it out until his death. You get a very different understanding. In the earliest Islamic accounts of what happened to Muhammad, the being is not, does not identify himself nor does Muhammad know who it is. But a spirit being appears to him as he is praying and commands him to recite. And he says, I can't. I can't read. I can't recite. The, the being then presses him on his chest so hard that he cannot breathe and says, recite. And he says, I can't. The being presses him even harder so that he thinks he's going to die and says, recite! And he says, okay! <laughs> and he goes home trembling, 
trembling with fear, with terror. And he says to his wife, cover me, because he's he's shivering in Arabia. And he says, I am afraid, woe is me, I am afraid that I am either poet or possessed. Either poet or possessed. I am afraid that I have been visited by a demon. Or that he's a poet, which in those days didn't mean Rod McEwen. It meant that he was receiving these ecstatic utterances which were akin to a kind of madness. So in other words, he's saying, I'm either crazy or demon-possessed. This was his immediate reaction to the visitation from the being. So his wife, Khadija, she said, calm down. My uncle, Waraka bin Nalfal, is a priest. He was a Christian priest, a Nestorian. We're going to go to him and tell him what happened, and we're going to straighten this out. So they went to see Waraka, and Waraka told him, this is the angel. You are a prophet. He actually said some things that are a little different, but for the purposes of the story, that's close enough. He said, you are a prophet of the Most High. It was Wadaka who convinced Muhammad that it was the angel Gabriel who had appeared to him and that he was now a prophet of the Supreme God. So, He began to preach? No. For three years, he didn't do anything. He had a small group of people who believed in him, including his wife. And every now and then, he would receive more visitations from this being, the angel Gabriel. And at one point, though, the angel Gabriel did not appear to him for a considerable period of time, and whereupon he became despondent and went up onto the high mountain, intending to throw himself off. Suicidally despondent. But he was stopped. The angel appeared to him and said, No, these things are going to shake out. Patience, relax. Three years later, he began to preach openly. And then he ran afoul of the Quraysh. Because he was preaching that there was only one God and that all those 360 idols in in the Kaaba were false gods. Were, at best, fictions and at worst, demons. So, they obviously would not take kindly to that kind of a message because they saw that it struck at the heart of their livelihood. They would see that as a direct threat, imperiling what they were doing. And they did, that's exactly how they saw it. So tensions began immediately to arise between the Quraysh and the Muslims. And that is very important for our story a little bit later, but what is even more important is how the Jews and the Christians reacted to him. There were three powerful Jewish tribes in Arabia at the time of Muhammad, and there were Christian groups, mostly heretical Christian groups, Gnostics, Nestorians, Monophysites, Arians, And they had left the empire because the empire was a Christian, an orthodox Christian empire. They were not, they did not make things hospitable in the public sphere for non-orthodox Christians. So they left and the immediate vicinity to the east of the empire was Arabia. So mostly Muhammad had contact with Jews and secondarily with heretical Christians. To both groups, He went, and he immediately appealed to them as their new prophet. He said, I am the prophet that has been prophesied in your scriptures, and I am preaching to you the same message that was preached to you by your prophets. And they didn't accept it. The Jews said, wait a minute. You're not Jewish, and you're a Jewish prophet? And the Christians said... We weren't expecting a prophet. (laughs) It is finished. Now, 
Imagine for, your, for, for a moment that you're in Muhammad's place at this point. You have two choices. You can say, oh, yeah, I guess I'm not a prophet. Never mind. Or what? There's only one other choice. You can say, and he did say, you do not find prophecies of me in your scriptures. You do not find that the message that I am preaching to you confirms the message you've received from your prophets. You have dared to tamper with the word of God. You have dared to corrupt your own scriptures that you received from your prophets to erase mentions of me. What else can he do? That was the only other option left open to him, but it became Islamic orthodoxy. It is Muslim belief, mainstream Muslim belief, to this day, that Muhammad received the same message that was received by Abraham, by Moses, by David and Solomon, by John the Baptist and by Jesus himself. Where his message diverges from theirs, it is because their followers tampered with their messages and changed them. Now there's a corollary to this. There is a, 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 another aspect of this then. If Muhammad, the original message of Abraham and Moses and Jesus and all the rest of them was the same as Muhammad's, then what was that message? Islam. And so you read, chapter 3, verse 64 of the Quran says, the Jews and the Christians argue about Abraham. And the Jews say he was a Jew, and the Christians say he was a Christian. Neither of them know. He was a Muslim. <laughs> it's absolutely true. It's right in there. It has to be, you see. It's the, it's the only possible outcome of his claiming to have been a prophet in the same line as theirs. And you understand, see, he, he, he got this an extraordinary idea from wherever it was derived that there was only one God. And he knew that there were two other groups that were preaching that there was only one God. And so he, for whatever reason, assumed that he must be saying, he must be dealing with the only one God that they were preaching. But, as a result of their rejection, and of course their rejection was entirely reasonable on both sides, of his message, and as a result of the fact that he could do nothing at that point, except either back down from his prophetic claim, which he could not do, or to claim that they had corrupted their scriptures, the only thing he could possibly do was to say, that Abraham was a Muslim, Moses was a Muslim, Jesus himself was a Muslim, they taught Islam. And insofar as Christianity diverges from Islam, that is evidence of the corruption that human beings introduced into the original message of Jesus. So that Islam is the original religion of mankind. The first shrine was built. Abraham built the Kaaba. That's Arabic tradition. Pre-Islamic Arabic tradition. It's the first center of worship for humanity. And in it was taught Islam until the message was obscured by the selfishness, by avarice, by any, any number of other things. And so it's extraordinary if you read the earliest Islamic traditions about the life of Muhammad, you will find that there is a story, for example, when he's 12 years old, his uncle takes him to Syria on a trip with him, and they go see Bashara, who is a Christian monk. And Bashara, when he sees him, says, this is the prophet we have been expecting. Because he has the mark of the prophet that is in the Christian scriptures the mark of the prophet who is to come, that he will have a mole, a large mole, the size of a fist, on his back, surrounded by warts. <laughs> I'm not making this up. And 
Bashara saw that on his back and knew he was the prophet. So you know, if you've, if, you, if you've read the New Testament, you know that there's no mention of such a being who is going to have this mole and these warts. Well, that's because they took it out. <laughs> and so likewise, there are stories of Jewish rabbis who see him and they say that this is the prophet and the Jews are going to reject him and they're going to bear the punishment of rejecting him. And we see also, later on in Muhammad's life, when he is established as a prophet and has begun to amass a larger following and, has a matter of, as a matter of fact, has become the leader of a political entity as well as a religious one, that a delegation of Christians came from Najran, which is in the southern Arabia, in Yemen. Najran was a Christian center before Muhammad, before Islam. And according to this story, a delegation of Christians came from there to visit Muhammad. And on the way, their leader explained to them, the rest of the people coming in the, in the delegation, they said, this is the prophet that we've been waiting for. However, the Byzantines regularly send us money to maintain the Christian community in Najran. If we acknowledge this man as a prophet, the Byzantines will cut us off. Therefore, we have to go and argue with him and do everything we can to contradict him. In other words, it was pure avarice and naked self-interest with no spiritual principle behind it whatsoever that led the Christians of Muhammad's time to reject him as a prophet. And these things, you see, these things are in canonical Islamic sources. That story is not in the Quran, but it's in the Hadith, the traditions of Muhammad, that are considered to be reliable by Muslims and normative for faith and practice. And so it is very common to find Muslims, who, especially Muslims who do not have regular contact with Christians, Muslims in the Islamic world more than in the West, but also in the West. It's very common to find Muslims who generally assume that all Christians are operating in bad faith. They know Muhammad is a prophet. They refuse to admit it because it would make life inconvenient for them. I have a very close friend, a very close personal friend, as opposed to a very far away personal friend, who enjoys spending his time, his spare time, discussing, going onto these Islamic bulletin boards. And he's a, he's a Catholic, he's, he's a Christian, but he goes onto these Islamic bulletin boards and he gets to know the people there and on the internet and uh, really tries to cultivate real friendships because he believes that in a work of evangelization between Christians and Muslims, the only possible way to affect that kind of a conversion is by a close, uh, a personal relationship. And so, in, at length, I thought one of the most telling exchanges he ever had was with a Muslim who he had deeply impressed because uh, his, his, he, he had deeply impressed him by offering prayers for his wife when he was ill and by asking for the Muslim's prayers also and so on. And... At one point, the, 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 the Muslim, who I believe actually also is in Yemen, said to him, you know, my religion tells me that you are of necessity a hypocrite. But it is increasingly difficult for me to see that in you in particular. But you see, that is the general mainstream kind of Islamic understanding of both Jews and Christians. Jews actually come off even a bit worse. That they are people who have rejected Muhammad for base reasons. And out of their perversity, maintain themselves outside the fold of Islam. Now, this has very important implications for the political situation today. And that's because of many things. Notably, that the Quran, chapter 3, verse 110, says that the Muslims are the best of people who live on the earth. 
the best of peoples. Whereas chapter 98, verse 6, says that the unbelievers are the most vile of created beings. The most vile of created beings. That's us. Now, you have the best of people on the one hand and the worst of people on the other. And you have it in the context of what is and has been from its inception a political entity as well as a religious one. This is not just a religious appeal. It is a political statement. Because, do you know what the first year of the Islamic calendar is? You may know that it's the year 1428, I believe. But what is it 1428 years after? Yes? The Hijra. What's the Hijra? Yeah, now consider that for a minute. The Islamic calendar does not begin with what we might expect. The Islamic calendar, in other words, it doesn't begin with the birth of Muhammad, or the death of Muhammad, or the first prophecy of Muhammad, which I believe would be the three most reasonable candidates. At least if I were setting it up, I would have picked one of those, wouldn't you? Seriously, I mean, why would it be when Muhammad moves from one place to another that that's the beginning of Islam? What is so significant about that move? That's what hijra means. Hijra means migration or flight. And it commemorates that in the 12th year of Muhammad's prophetic career, in the year 622, he moved from Mecca, his home city, to Medina, another city in Arabia about 90 miles away. Now, why did he move? And what's so important about that move that that becomes year one of Islam rather than anything else? It's then that Muhammad, for the first time, became a political and military leader as well as a religious one. The Medinans, actually this, the name Medina is short for Medina Nabi, which is just the city of the prophet. The name of the city was Yathrib, and in Yathrib there was a rival tribe to the Quraysh in Mecca. And they were pagans also, but they didn't like the Meccans. And they saw that Muhammad was increasingly at odds with the Meccans. And was having all sorts of trouble with them. Sometimes violent difficulties. And they invited Muhammad to come with all the Muslims to Medina. And he would become their leader. They would convert to Islam. And he would become not only their prophet, but their generalissimo. And so he did. And so the very beginning of Islam, you see, is when Islam becomes political. And when the Islamic polity is established. Sayyid Qutb, who's a jihadist theorist of the 20th century in Egypt, whose writings are influential around the world for Muslims, he wrote that one of the gravest weaknesses and errors of Christianity and the Christian West was the idea of a secular sphere and a sacred one. Much not, not even the idea of the separation of religion from the state, or the idea of non-establishment of a religion. Not even that. That's miles away. Just even the idea that there is a distinction between the sacred and the secular realm. He said Islam, in contrast, is total. Totalitarian, one might say. It is encompassing every aspect of life. And it leaves nothing out. Now, of course, Christians would say the same thing. But what he was seeing was, is that the idea of the distinction between the sacred and the secular was a tacit admission that there were some things the religion didn't cover. Not that they covered it in a different way, but that they didn't cover it at all. And he said, in contrast, Islam covers every aspect of life, from the most minute elements of individual behavior to the governance of the state and the relationship of states within between and the relationships of states with other states. And this goes all the way back to Muhammad. Qutb was no innovator, he was a revivalist. And what he was trying to revive in the Islamic world, he and many others, was the concept that <laughs> Islam is not just a religious entity, but a political one, and it is the responsibility of Muslims to make sure that that political system is supreme over all other political systems 
because it emanates from the best of people, and the best, it is their responsibility before God to impose the governance of the best of people over the worst of people. And so there are political implications that are very large. You can take them as far as you want to, because they do. Sayyid al-Maududi, Maulana Maududi, the uh, founder of Jamaat Islami, which is still the largest Islamist political party in Pakistan. Maududi died in 1979, another internationally influential figure. He said, non-Muslims have absolutely no right to wield the reins of power in any part of God's earth. Non-Muslims have absolutely no right to wield the reins of power in any part of God's earth. And if they do, the believers are under the obligation to dislodge them from that power by any means possible. And to impose, you see, Islamic law, the Islamic social order. Because the Jews and the Christians are renegades who have rejected out of their perversity the prophecy, the, the prophethood of Muhammad, they have to be reminded of their degraded, renegade status at every turn. And so traditional Islamic law mandates a system of institutionalized discrimination. Christians are not to build new churches or repair old ones. So this community is in a perpetual state of decline. Christians have to pay a special tax, the Jews also, specified in the Quran, chapter 9, verse 29, that is a tax not levied upon the Muslims. Ending up with the fact that the, it was the Christians and Jews who financed the great Islamic empires. When those communities became impoverished by this taxation, then those empires went into decline. They had to step off the street if a Muslim is walking by. You have to always be subservient in public. Uh, not to hold authority over a Muslim. So that the uh, Christians were condemned to the most menial jobs in, in the societies. Now, going back to the beginning, when you are the adherents of a supremacist creed that teaches you that you are better people than the other people. You understand, in other words, there is not the idea that all human beings are created in the image of God and are equal in dignity before God because of that. There is no concept of that in Islam. But rather, there is this very sharp dualism that the believers, yes, are good, are blessed by God, and they have the responsibility to lead and to rule. The unbelievers, on the other hand, are cursed. The Christians, chapter 9, verse 30 of the Quran, dare to call Jesus the Son of God. In this they imitate the unbelievers of old, and Allah's curse is upon them. So, you have the leader of the Christians quoting someone, but essentially saying it himself, that Muhammad did not do good things. Was brought only new, any innovation he brought was evil and inhuman. Not only is the statement itself offensive to a believer, but the fact that he would dare to say it is offensive. Because another one of the stipulations of the laws for the Zumma, the Dimma, the subjugation of the Christians under the rule of the Muslims is that they will not speak ill of Allah or Muhammad. And if they do, their contract of protection is revoked. In other words, they can no longer practice their religion freely within the confines of that discrimination. But rather, their life is forfeit. And so, what we have in the reaction to the Regensburg Address is actually a worldwide reassertion of the supremacist ideology that the Muslims are superior to the Christians and the Christians must recognize that superiority if not by becoming Muslim, then at least by accepting their subservient status which mandates that they engage in no criticism or negativity toward Islam. It's the same thing going on now. Have you heard of the movie Fitna? A couple people have. Fitna is a 15-minute film that was made by a Dutch politician, Geert Wilders. 
in which Wilders depicts very he 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 has the various quotations of the Quran from the Quran followed by scenes of violence perpetrated by Muslims and Islamic preachers exhorting Muslims, often quoting those verses, to commit more acts of violence. So, for example, the film opens with chapter 8, verse 60 of the Quran, which tells Muslims to strike terror into the hearts of the enemies of Allah and your enemies. And then we see the World Trade Center, we hear terrified people calling for help, and so on. We see the bombings on the trains in Madrid on March 11, 2004. And then we see Islamic preachers saying, kill the Jews and the Christians, fight against them, subjugate them, strike terror into their hearts. Now, this film is actually a pretty straight and accurate rendering of the way in which jihad terrorists make use of the Quran and Islamic teachings in order to justify violence and exhort Muslims to commit acts of violence. And in response to it, the organization of the Islamic Conference, which is the largest voting bloc today in the United Nations, 57 Muslim governments, issued a, an appeal to the European Union to ban the film, to make it impossible to find. It's all over the internet. You can get it easily. You can get it at my website, Jihad Watch. And to not only ban the film, but to criminalize insults to Islam. And you think, well, that's preposterous. That would never happen in the Western world. Oh, yeah? The United Nations Commission on Human Rights unanimously, unanimously passed a resolution just last week. And what was the resolution about, you ask? Look, you may not know, I didn't know, that the United Nations Commission on Human Rights has a free speech advocate whose job is to protect free speech, to go around the world monitoring abuses of freedom of speech, that is, attempts to infringe it, attempts to block it, and to issue condemnations of those infringements of freedom of speech. But now he has been charged with a new duty, and that is to suppress freedom of speech himself in the name of protecting Muslims from insult. He has to categorize, to classify, to uh, identify and bring to the attention of the United Nations insults to Islam, which will then be accorded with various condemnations. Now, this is extraordinarily significant because the freedom of speech and the freedom of conscience are essential to the dignity of the human person and essential to the functioning of any society in which people of conscience disagree about fundamental truths. It is not possible to have a society in which people disagree about fundamental truths without killing one another unless we are willing to put up with some offense. And of course, Catholics have been told that many, many times when there have been offenses to the Catholic faith in the public sphere, in the art world, and so on, that this is just something we all have to put up with in a pluralistic society. And now there is another group that is not being asked to put up with this kind of offense, but on the, in, on the contrary, the actual governing bodies, the United Nations, the European Union, are working hand in glove with the organization of the Islamic Conference to limit free speech in this regard. Now, <clears throat> this is a very grave situation, obviously. And of course, it is also supplemented by plain fear. It's noteworthy that the New York Times... Did you, did you hear that there were some cartoons of Muhammad that were printed in a Danish newspaper and worldwide riots followed? Because one of the cartoons dared to make a, show a link between Islam and terrorism by putting a bomb in Muhammad's turban. And so in response to this suggestion that Islam is not a religion of peace, Muslims again rioted and killed innocent people. But it's the same thing as with Geert Wilders' film. It was not Geert Wilders who linked Islam with violence. And it was not the cartoonist, Vestergaard, who linked Islam with violence. It was the Muslims who continually had linked Islam with violence by quoting the Quran versus uh, mandating warfare against non-believers, and specifically Jews and Christians, mandating their subjugation, 
and using those verses to make recruits among Muslims in Muslim communities for jihadist groups and to justify their actions. But the reporting on this, the speaking about it, or the characterization of it, which is really what Paleologos did, as quoted by the Holy Father, is on the verge of becoming illegal. Now, of course, the United States would never go along with anything like that, would they? Well, as a matter of fact, the Speaker of the House has indicated her great willingness to go along with it. After all, it's hate speech. But the great difficulty here is that you can quote Muslims who say these things. If I say, Muhammad said, I've been made victorious through terror, that's simply reporting. He did say, I have been made victorious through terror. And so I quoted him in my book, uh, my biography of Muhammad, The Truth About Muhammad. So Al-Arabiya, the, the, the Arabic network channel, a few weeks ago noticed the book. It's two years old. <laughs> That's okay. Better late than never. And they said, this book is full of lies and hate. Spencer says that Muhammad said he's been made victorious through terror. Muhammad says he's been made victorious through terror. <laughs> And it's in sources that Al-Arabiya would no doubt, in other contexts, certify as being valid for Islamic belief. So what are we to make of that? Do they, they know this, of course. And they know that, they, that most of the people who read the report do not know this. So they can deceive them in the service of their goal. But more importantly, the main problem is, is that I dared to say it as a non-Muslim. So this is a great challenge for us. This is an extraordinary opportunity that we have been given to try to recall the value of some of the fundamental principles of our faith and our civilization. And to try to impress upon those of us who are in the same nation but do not understand the value any longer of those things, to impress upon them the value of them and to stand for these principles against this violent and supremacist ideology. And so I think that one of the geniuses of the Regensburg Address, actually, is that the Holy Father emphasizes the primacy of reason and the close relationship between faith and reason which is really something that, were it followed through consistently, would lead us right back to the inconsistencies and the oddities within the Islamic story and the Islamic understanding of Christians and Christianity, and would lead to a great opening that could be the occasion of an extraordinary renewal in the world both in the West and in the Islamic world. But only if Westerners, not just Catholics, but Westerners of all creeds, or no creed, no official one anyway, have the courage to recover and to defend the principles upon which our civilization is based and which are so grievously in peril today. Thank you very much. Muslims, you know, how much of how much of this you think is actually going on and 
How are they being made open? How are we able to do anything to assist mm -hmm. a potential conversion of Muslims? Conversion of Muslims is really one of the most difficult things to do in the world. Nuclear physics, conversion of Muslims. <laughs> and it's, it's really extraordinarily difficult because Islam is a polemic against Christianity. The Quran is a polemic against Christianity. I was telling the people at dinner, uh, pardon me if I repeat myself, uh, that this is something that I experienced myself Many years ago, when I was in, in college, in 1492, I was having lunch with a Muslim, and we were discussing Islam and Christianity, and I said to him, you know, as Christians, we believe God is our Father, and we have a closeness to God, and we experience a closeness to God that is not really available in the Islamic schema of this absolute ruler who is somewhat more remote. And he said, you think God is your Father? then why does he punish you for your sins? <laughs> and sat back triumphantly. And I thought, that's nuts. In the first place, what father does not punish, does not discipline his children? What good father, anyway? But secondly, I only realized later when I first read the Quran that that was in the Quran. It says that the Jews and Christians come and they say, God is our father and we are his beloved children. Say to them, if God is your father, then why does he punish you for your sins? <laughs> and so the guy was just following the script. And you see, the Quran is full of things like that. There are many places where Christian theology is taken up and refuted. Now, Muhammad did not understand the Trinity. He thought, because I guess he'd been in Byzantine churches and he saw the, uh, I think it's very likely that he had, that he saw the icons that are traditionally of Our Lady on the one side and Our Lord on the other. And so he said, has Jesus, who in this scheme, remember, is a prophet of Islam, is not the Son of God, is not the Savior of the world, was not crucified. And he says, Allah will... Call Jesus before him. This is chapter 5, verse 116 of the Quran. Allah will call Jesus before him and will say, Did you tell your followers to take yourself and your mother as gods beside me? And Jesus says, Oh no, I didn't do that. Because he's just a prophet, a human being. And so, Christians come and they speak about the, the, the Holy Trinity and as far as Muslims are concerned, they've already been told in the Quran that this is false and this is wrong. Do not say three, cease, it will be better for you. It's a warning to Christians in chapter 4 of the Quran. So it's very difficult, in other words, to even begin a genuine dialogue because a believing Muslim who knows the Quran will think that he knows all about Christianity already and it's all wrong. And, at the same time, however, because there is very little in terms of mercy, in terms of redemption, in terms of forgiveness in Islam, Christianity is irresistibly attractive. Now, in the Middle East, your deen, your religion, is, is, is part and parcel of your ethnicity. You know, if you're French, you can't say, I think I'm going to convert to German. <laughs> you're just stuck being French. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> but it's the same thing. It is a very common thing for Muslims and even Middle Eastern Christians also to think of their religion in that same way. It's something you're born with and you got it and you're stuck with it. So there was a Muslim a few years back who was talking about this and he was saying, you know, I'm, I, I think Christianity is wonderful. And I'm very attracted to it. And I think that the teachings of love and forgiveness and humility are extraordinary. And if I could choose my religion, I would be a Christian. But it never occurred to him that he actually could. And so, there's also one other piece of this, and that is that Muhammad said, if anybody changes his religion, kill him. Islam is a room with an entry door and no exit door. 
You're in, you're in. You leave, you're dead. So, obviously, these sentences will not always be carried out. Somebody has to want to kill you. And most of the time, I know many converts from Islam, and in the United States, they are safe, generally. But often, they have no contact with the people back home, or they've changed their names, or something, because it really is a live problem for converts in the Islamic world. Now, this has created a situation in which there are indeed many converts to Christianity from Islam in the Islamic world, but most of them are in secret. Now, I think one of the worst things that Europe could do in its ongoing slow-motion suicide would be to admit Turkey into the European Union. However, I also know of secret Christians in Turkey who are hoping that Turkey will be admitted into the European Union because then European Union laws about freedom of religion would be enforced and they could live openly as Christians. I doubt that would happen. I doubt that the European Union would have the teeth to enforce it. But you see what I mean. There are many secret Christians in the Islamic world. And this is a result of the social opprobrium to, as well as the real physical peril that Christians would be in, converts would be in, converts to anything. Uh, but yes, it's, it's, it, and so in some, it's very hard, it's very rare, but it does happen. And Mahdi Alam, who uh, converted to Catholicism and was received by the, uh, by, baptized by the Pope on Easter, he is a, uh, he's an extraordinarily courageous individual because he's putting himself out on the line for this publicly. And you understand that uh, in Europe, in Italy today, his life is very much indeed in peril. And there have already been calls for his death among Muslims. But I think most interesting about that is when they're not calling for his death, there have been several other Muslim spokesmen who have said what an insult it is for the Pope to have done this in such a public manner. He's just trying to stir up trouble. Now consider that for a minute. In what world, in what universe, is it insulting for the Pope, a Christian priest, to act like a Christian priest. In a world in which Christians are supposed to be silent and subservient and submissive and to do the bidding of their masters. You see. In other words, here again, we see calls for Christians to assume their status as mandated in Islamic law. And the idea that Islamic law must be asserted over the West. And most of the time, the West is completely supine about this because they don't even realize the implications. They don't understand what is happening. So, sorry for the long answer. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Um, what do the Muslims believe about the relationship between um, faith and reason? And one faith, one, reason, zero. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there isn't any relation between faith and reason. The Muslim philosophers, the famous, the great Muslim philosophers, notably Avicenna and Averroes, they tried to, they, 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 they wrestled with this problem because they would see in the Quran things that were contrary to reason and of course, in Europe, they were working on the same problem in different ways, and often using these guys as sources, as I'm sure you, you know far better than I. But in any case, the Muslim philosophers essentially tried to posit the idea of two truths that were independent of one another, two realities. This truth is just reality, right? And there was reality of faith and the reality of reason that there were the truths that you could come to by the means of reason, and then there were the truths that were revealed by Allah. However, this was heretical, because there is no truth outside of the realm of what is revealed by Allah. In the incoherence of the philosophers, Al-Ghazali, who was a great philosopher himself in, in, in many ways, he was the founder, the key figure of the Sufis, which is the mystical order within Islam, 
And he wrote this book, The Incoherence of the Philosophers, refuting the philosophers on the grounds that they were violating the teachings of the Quran. And so, really, what happened, the reason why you've probably heard of Avicenna and Averroes, but never heard of any other Muslim philosopher, is because there are a few other Muslim philosophers, but the whole intellectual inquiry into this area dried up. And the and faith versus reason, faith won unanimously. The idea that anything could be posited that would be in contradiction of the Quran was absolutely ruled out of order. And a certain anti-intellectualism that flows from the idea that this is the perfect book that dropped from heaven. And these are the perfect people. Anything other than that was out the window. So you have the story, it's probably an apocryphal story, but it nonetheless sums up a real attitude of the Caliph Umar when he conquered Egypt. And he ordered the burning of the Library of Alexandria. And he, they said, what are you doing burning all these books? And he said, if they contradict the Quran, they're heretical. If they agree with the Quran, they're superfluous. <laughs> so you have this one book. Fascinating book, really. One of my favorite books to read. I know that's weird. <laughs> but certainly not a book that encompasses all the questions of the universe, as Orthodox Muslim belief would have it. And so there is an irrationality to this. Maimonides, the Jewish philosopher of the Middle Ages, he it was in Spain for a while, and he had great, con immense uh, amount of contact with Islamic philosophers. And he said that their cosmology is like a king who rides his horse. And every morning he goes out for a ride and he follows this particular path. But if the king decides on Thursday to take another path entirely, that's completely his prerogative. The sovereignty of Allah is all. And so in other words, Maimonides goes on to say that you have the world as it appears to us, but if those trees outside, Allah decides tomorrow would really be better off as deer, then they'll be deer. And there is absolutely no idea of a continuity of the observable order. That would be inconsistent with the sovereignty of God. Which, of course, completely kills the possibility of scientific investigation, and that's what it did. Yes, sir? I'm very grateful you, you mentioned... Turkey, it leads me to ask a question maybe for the, the students would get us into some of the re recent uh, anomalies in our foreign policy and strategy. I, I used to live in the Muslim world and was an advisor to the Turks yeah. and the Greeks in the Six-Day War against Israel. And the Turks wanted me to go on a, on a laundry uniform to fight on the side of the Israelis because they believed that they, they had ruled Jerusalem for 550 years. What I'm saying is that there's a lot of anomalies for a long time. We worked with the Muslims. Uh, I was involved with things where we got Muslims out of jail to go fight against the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. You know, Mike Pillsbury was the CIA handler of uh, Osama bin Laden. We help now are in helping do in uh, Kosovo and in ba Bosnia with also the encouragement of the Israelis helping to establish Islamic republics in the heart of Europe, the Balkans. So there are a lot of anomalies here, and I raise this as a Catholic, I'm not sure your religious profession. I'm a Catholic. Um, that I'm worried about false dialectics. I've lived a lot in the Islamic world, and you know, Balkans, Solomon, Rushdie is, you know, I'm right to the heart of the norm of faith of the Muslims, because if there might be one interpolation, uh, it's a satanic interpolation, how many others are in the Quran? Yeah. It goes right to the norm of faith. But we also have manipulated Islam, as you know, in, in, uh, in Pakistan. I mean, with the BCCI bank and the money laundering bank. And um, what I'm trying to understand is in this manipulated clash of civilizations, you know, that, that the West, or especially the Christians in the West, are not instrumentalized into a false dialectic. Could you say a little bit more about how you see the why has our policy, like the MPRI military uh, contractors, have a State Department contract with Muslim money to help set up Islamic republics in the heart of Europe? What's going on here? Foolishness. Huh? Foolishness. Well, look, I'll tell you. I mean, is it just folly? This is, yeah. These are deliberate strategic policies. Yeah, they're deliberate and strategic folly. 
Yes. How, how would you account uh, for this? Because there's a. I'll account for it yeah, very easily. I, I would submit to you that the United States, as well as Israel, have been aiding in the establishment of an Islamic Republic in Kosovo and aiding the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and all the other things that you mentioned because of a short-sighted ignorance involving many of the issues that we've been discussing tonight. When Khomeini took power in Iran, there was not a single person, not a single person, not even one, in the State Department who had read any of his books. And they all, in the State Department, dismissed him as a religious fanatic. And because in the State Department they were and are rootless cosmopolites who have no religion, they did not understand the importance of the religious motivation. And they dismissed it. And they continue to do so. And so they think they can play real politic with these Islamic groups and that they will thereby win hearts and minds and show the Muslims that the United States is their friend and thus pacify this antagonistic situation. But it will never work. And the more they do it, the more they're digging their own grave. Because the imperatives to wage war against the Jews and the Christians and to subjugate them, and of course, Israel is the Jews and we are the Christians in the world today. We are the quintessential emblem of Christianity in the world today. Rightly or wrongly, or for better or worse, the jihad of Osama bin Laden was declared against the Jews and the Crusaders, that is, America, Israel, and the United States. And in any case, the imperatives to wage war against the Jews and the Christians come from Quranic mandates to subjugate the renegades. Fight against those who disobey Allah and his messenger, even if they are of the people of the book, that's the Jews and the Christians, until they pay the jizya tax with willing submission and feel themselves subdued until they are subservient and subjugated. That's chapter 9, verse 29 of the Quran. And that imperative is rooted in the reality that the Jews and the Christians are not Muslims. It is not rooted in the reality that the Jews and the Christians are not nice to the Muslims. It will not be overcome by Jews and Christians being nice to Muslims. They will still be Jews and Christians. They will still be renegades. So I do th believe very strongly that the policies that have been pursued by the State Department since the 70s regarding Khomeini and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and are continuing to be pursued by the State Department are completely wrong-headed and are just a new example of the same kind of short-sighted realpolitik that has dogged the Christian world in its relations with Muslims ever since the beginning of Islam. The Emperor John VI Cantacuzenes was one of the Byzantine emperors, was the first Byzantine emperor, as a matter of fact, to invite the Muslims into Europe. And he did it in the 14th century because he was involved in a dynastic dispute and he asked the Muslims, the Ottoman Turks, for help. If they would side with him, he would let them venture up into the Balkans. Well, you know how sometimes you have a house guest and he never leaves? They never left. He played real politic and the same people destroyed his empire within a hundred years. Would you let me add a, just a one small footnote? I, yeah, I, I really get some other people. No, Go ahead. No, I, I used to live in uh, Iran under the under Shah in Sendo. I could just tell you this for your encouragement. There were a lot of people, I was a special forces officer, who wrote things back. There are still documents on these. We were trying to warn the State Department and the military that the Shah, as uh, certain people know, wanted to go back to a pre-Islamic uh, Persia. He had contempt for the Shiite masses. And we were writing things back. You know, He's building a time bomb. But the people didn't want to listen to it. Because the, the British grand strategy, and now our own grand strategy, Israelis, wanted to play the non-Arabic Muslims 
against the Arabic Muslims. That's their grand strategy. Yeah, well, good so luck with Kurds, that. I can do the shots funding on mine. But I, re I remember there were many, I just, uh, for your consolation maybe, they were trying to say that the, the Shah had this technological scientific elite, the pilots we used to fly with, and they're building a time bomb. And, and we tried to say, you know, the Shiites are growing, you know, Khomeini's in, uh, in France, mm -hmm. but our people didn't want it because they had a higher grand strategy about yeah. the manipulation of the Muslim world. I don't see how that's consoling. That's exactly what I well, was saying. No, well, I mean, it's by, by consoling, I'm saying, there were people, as in about Afghanistan... Oh, who were trying to warn you. Yeah, they warned. They but, weren't all you know, clueless, but, in other words. But some people yeah, but they didn't win. In other words, we're not completely idiots, but some people don't listen. No, I know they're not completely idiots. Yeah. I've spoken to groups within the, the, the intelligence community and Homeland Security and so on. But every time, it's mid-level people who invite me, and the higher-ups get mad. And it's not just me. It's not about me because many people that I know have the same experience. There are mid-level people who are aware of the problem and trying to increase awareness of the problem, while the higher-ups are mired in political correctness and refusing to deal with the problem. Anyway, all that happy to Yes, sir? I just had one question. If the Quran is the one book that encompasses everything, yes. how can they accept the Hadith? How can they go ahead? I mean, if it's not yeah. the Quran... That's a terrific question. Thank you. The Hadith. The, 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 the answer to the question is in the Quran itself. In many, many places, easily 15 places, uh, it says, Obey Allah and His Messenger. And His Messenger, that's Muhammad. He who obeys the Messenger obeys Allah. And chapter 33, verse 21 of the Quran says, Muhammad is an excellent example of conduct. Which sounds like, you know, gee, he's a good guy. But it's a very significant statement. In, in Islamic theology, it is interpreted as meaning that Muhammad is the supreme normative guide for human behavior. If he did it, it's right and it's good and it ought to be imitated. And so, where do you find what Muhammad did? How can you obey not only Allah, but his messenger? The Quran tells you almost nothing about who Muhammad was or what he did. It's all in the Hadith. So we see it as an extension of the Quran? Yes, it's the, the canonical Hadith, the Hadith that are recognized as authentic by Muslims. There's a whole science within Islam of winnowing out the authentic from the inauthentic. There is a recognition that some of them are forged.